to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24, our sermon text is verse 44 through verse 53. This is God's word. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. As far as the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray once more. Our God, as we have read the words of Scripture in which Jesus opened the minds of his disciples so that they should understand all that was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, so we ask for that same illumining power given to us by the Spirit of Christ that we would understand and see in Jesus, see in this text Jesus Christ himself, our Savior, and the gloriousness of his gospel. We pray this in his name. Amen. We come to the main part of the service. I don't know how you have thought about the service or whether you've ever thought about whether or not there's a main part to the service, but perhaps you have intuitively kind of felt that everything that leads up to the sermon is just sort of a preview and, and then the sermon is the, the, main, the main thing. Every element in the worship service is important. Everything that we do in the worship service is part of our expression of praise to God. And so, on the one hand, we don't want to single out one thing as though the other things were unimportant. But there is a centrality to preaching. There is a centrality to the proclamation of God's word. And so, in the way that we have organized our service here, and as is often the case within Reformed churches, it is the sermon that preoccupies the majority of the time that we spend gathered together, because there is such an important emphasis on the proclamation and the preaching of God's Word. So this morning, we consider two things, preaching and praise. A word from God towards us, and a word from us towards God. A word of mercy, 
in which God speaks to us, and then a response to that mercy on our part in which we bless God responsibly. So those will be the two main points that we will take up in our sermon today, and that's the idea that God's preaching of mercy to his people in the gospel calls for a response of praise. God's preaching of mercy to his people in the gospel calls for a response of praise. And so let us consider preaching as we understand it, what's, what we're told about it in our text this morning. As we do so, we'll take it up under three, three questions that we'll be exploring. First, where is the message that is to be preached to be found? Where do we, where do we go for the, the content of the message? Secondly, what is the message? What, what is preaching? What is at the heart of preaching? And then thirdly, who is speaking in the preaching? So first, and briefly, let's consider where the message is to be found. In our text, we read that Jesus says in verse 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we have in our text the the location of where the message that is to be preached is to be found. We have the Old Testament the Word of God as it was then recorded down on paper or, or papyrus or, or some other kind of, of, of manuscript, the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms. This is a way of describing the whole Old Testament. And now we have that additional revelation, that additional written revelation recorded for us in the New Testament. And it is here that we go to find the content of the message, that we are a people that are committed to hearing God's word as it is found between Genesis 1.1, in which, uh, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the final amen at the end of Revelation, after the final benediction, which is pronounced in the name of Christ. And everything in between is what is held forth in the preaching of God's word. So there is an emphasis on these writings that we don't go beyond these writings as we seek to know the will of God. It was, to my own embarrassment and uh, humbling experience, when I went before the presbytery for licensure, part of the licensure requirement is that you must preach a sermon to the other ministers in the presbytery. I got up and I announced the sermon text. It was on John 3, John 3, 16. And then I announced the text. I said, let's pray. And after the prayer, I went right into preaching the sermon without reading the text. Not the best way to begin an examination before the presbytery. Not the best way to begin a ministry of preaching God's word by forgetting to actually read the text of God's word and what it says. And yet this is what we are committed to as 
pastors, elders in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we are committed to bringing before you God's word and what it says. But what does it say? What is the message? Secondly, what is the content of the message? What is the gospel? How, what, what is the, the, the thing that holds it all together? Again, Jesus' words are instructive. He, that in verse 44, he describes that what is written in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms is about him. That all things written about me must be fulfilled. And then it goes on in verse 46, again emphasizing the scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so here you have an, an, an encapsulation. What is, what is the whole Old Testament about, and what, are, what, what is the New Testament about? It's about Jesus. All that was written about me says Jesus. If you're reading in the Old Testament, you are reading about Jesus. And if you want to know what about Jesus particularly, there is a a further narrowing focus, especially this, the sufferings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. This is at the heart of the gospel message. This is what is of first importance. The sufferings, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is the central, most important, fundamental thing without which there is not a preaching of the gospel. The scriptures prophesy and Jesus commissions his disciples that they should preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. The word there for repentance, and I normally don't like to share the Greek behind a text, but in this case I think it's warranted. The the Greek behind it is metanoia. You can think of paranoia. It's kind of like paranoia, but with a different prefix, meta, metanoia. If paranoia is to have gone mad or to be outside of one's mind, metanoia is to have a mind that has changed. Metanoia is to have a a mind that has come back and reconsidered things, reevaluated things, and now stands in a a different attitude and disposition towards the truth that is presented before it. I think it's important to make this distinction because when we hear it translated as repentance, there are are connotations that the word repentance carries that that aren't necessarily a part of metanoia, or that aren't part of metanoia in its essence, but rather in its fruit. So, for example, think of John the Baptist who warns those who comes to him and he says to them, uh, who warned you to to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with metanoia. So there's a distinction there. There's the metanoia, but then there's the fruit of metanoia. There's there's the 
the actual concrete expression of a renewed life that flows out of this changed mind, this changed heart, but which we must still distinguish from it, at least theoretically, even if in practice they always come together. Consider that Paul characterizes his preaching as metanoia towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. Seeming to put metanoia and faith in synonymous or near synonymous usage there. That what we have when we, the, the attitude that we have towards Christ is faith and the attitude that we have towards the Father is metanoia. I spend time on this as important because this word hasn't always been translated well. In, it began in Latin with the Vulgate. Metanoia was translated penance. And to repent was translated do penance. And so if you come to this text with that understanding of repentance, if you understand repentance as doing penance, it may sound to you like Jesus is sending his disciples to go tell people to do penance for the forgiveness of sins. And even with our current translation of repentance, which is certainly an improvement, there is still that possibility that the way we use repentance elsewhere brings in ideas like that. That there's the forgiveness of sins that is to be preached in Christ's name. But first, there is a a moral renewal, concrete actions of repentance that you must first perform before that forgiveness is distributed to you. Or perhaps we consider repentance as a sorrow. That first you have to be sorry enough. And then comes the forgiveness of sins. If you're not sorry enough, if you're only afraid afraid of judgment, that's not good enough. You can't have forgiveness yet. And you have to somehow stir up within yourself a pure detestation of sin as sin before you can lay hold of Christ. And so we may import these ideas into verse 47, in which it says that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed, or repentance unto forgiveness of sins. Rather, it's, it's metanoia, a changed mind, a changed heart unto the forgiveness of sins. And so what verse 47 is saying is not the following. Do penance for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and it's all for you if, first, do penance. It's not that, and it's not this either. Here's the mercy of God in Christ Show me that you're really, really sorry first. Grovel a little bit. Show me that you really mean it, and then here, you can have it. But first, do 
Jesus is not here commissioning his disciples to go and preach a pardon that is given obstacles of conditions. And Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends them out to preach a free gospel. He sends them out to preach. When, when he says, go preach metanoia for the forgiveness of sins, he is telling them to go preach cancellation of your debts before, cancellation of debts before God. A year of amnesty, a proclamation of liberty. Here in Jesus Christ, here in the Savior who suffered and was dead for our sins, is the forgiveness of sins. Take him! This is what Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go do. We are so, so slow to see the mercy of God in the freeness of the gospel. John Owen describes this. This is a phenomenon that's not just in our own time, but it's been something that the saints have faced and struggled with over the centuries. John Owen describes this, this attitude that we might have that we had to steal forgiveness from God we had to pry it from his hands as though he were unwilling to give it. That if we are to get this forgiveness, we must steal fire from heaven and we but hope that he doesn't catch us as we make off with it. That if we, if we can just get away with it, we might be able to keep it. As though God did not consent to forgive the sinner. As though he gave forgiveness as a kind of unwilling willingness. As we're accustomed to when, say, we give charity. An unwilling willingness. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it, but my heart's not really in it. On the contrary, Owen describes the disposition of the Lord as as being most glorified. God is not the loser. God is not robbed of glory when the sinner makes off with forgiveness. But his glory is eminently manifested and his name and mercy is exalted. God has placed his great glory in the declaration and communication of forgiveness. Nor can we honor him more than by coming to him to receive it from him. His design in the whole mystery of the gospel is to make his grace glorious or to exalt pardoning mercy. The great fruit and product of his grace is forgiveness, the forgiveness of sinners. 
By this God will render himself glorious. For this cause he spared the world when sin first entered into it. For this cause did he provide a new covenant when the old was become unprofitable. For this cause did he send his Son into the world. We can then no way so eminently bring or ascribe glory to God as by our receiving forgiveness from him. Hence, the apostle exhorts us to come boldly to the throne of grace. We come about a business wherewith he is well pleased. Such as he delights in doing. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is the way of God's pardoning. He does it in a rejoicing, triumphant manner, satisfying abundantly his own holy soul therein and resting in his love. This is what is central to preaching. The announcement of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so we cannot lose that. That's, that's the bolt that holds the whole thing together. You take that away, you can be left with uh, a church with a beautifully aesthetic building. You can be left with a, a group of people who are engaged in, in all kinds of, of social action, a humanitarian aid, but you lose that. And you lose the announcement of the good news that is the peculiar glory of the church. So does this mean that that is all that you will hear in preaching? Does that mean that that's all you will hear from the pulpit? We preach the whole counsel of God. And that is going to include the transformed life that is the fruit of metanoia. And we see in, in the Apostle Paul's preaching that he characterizes that moral transformation as a frequent, if not constant, part of his preaching. That he says uh, in Acts, in uh, Acts chapter 26, you can get a glimpse into how Paul understands his commission from Christ. in which he's recounting his encounter with Jesus. And Jesus sends him to the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, says Jesus, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So again we see that a a component, a constant component of the apostolic preaching is the deeds that are appropriate to metanoia that are worthy of metanoia that follow from metanoia. 
And yet, as we preach all of these other things, we always situate them in reference to that central message of primary importance. As Paul says, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And so you will hear as part of preaching moral exhortation, but always in reference to that which is of first importance, the free offer of mercy in Jesus Christ. So you will hear sermons from this pulpit about anxiety, because the Bible talks about that. It talks about not being anxious for anything. You'll hear sermons about domestic life and the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children. If you've been attending this church long enough, you uh, may have heard and may even remember a sermon that was preached on how do we take care of animals? How do we relate to animals? From, From Proverbs, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. This is something that God's word tells us about, that it gives us instruction about these things. These are God's creatures. God made them, and how you relate to them is part of your uh, renewed life as one having come to God. And yet it's, it's going to be situated always in reference to the most glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. There is a pressure on pulpits, upon pastors, and there is sometimes even a temptation from within to exchange our gold for plastic. There is a pressure from without to exchange the gold of the announcement of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ for the plastic of some other program or agenda. How many would be pleased to see a pulpit become the propaganda arm of a political movement or the publishing arm of a social cause? You can think about just what sort of opportunity a pulpit provides. You have churches all across the nation, some of them smaller, perhaps a couple dozen people gathering together, others larger, 100, 200 people, others larger still, a thousand or multiple thousands of people. You can just think about how this might look to somebody on the outside. Look at the infrastructure that they have set up. A man gets to go up week after week and say to hundreds of people, whatever he wants. No, not whatever he wants. Not whatever he wants. And so there is pressure. If the pulpit is an olive tree, olive tree, there is a temptation to the preacher, to the pastor, to forsake the olives, to forsake the oil of the gospel. And this cannot be done. You cannot, preaching must not forsake the olive oil that is the balm of scripture for sinners' wounds. 
to substitute for it bandages that cannot heal. If the pulpit is a grapevine, the one who speaks from behind it cannot leave that wine which makes glad the heart of poor sinners and substitute for it a vinegar that will only make the stomach sick. He must preach a Christ who suffered on the behalf and in the place of sinners for their release and his rising again for their justification. That is what is at the heart of the good news that the leadership of your church endeavors to proclaim faithfully week by week. Thirdly, who speaks the message? In a human way, it's, there's, there is a human messenger. You hear my voice with all of its peculiarities that meets your ears. And yet we read in our text in Luke 24 that the disciples are commissioned by Christ, that they are to preach in his name. Verse 47 that repentance, metanoia, for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. That there is a commissioning of the apostles to preach the things that they saw with their own eyes and to bear faithful testimony, a faithful witness to what they have seen and what the authoritative interpretation of those events is. So we find elsewhere throughout the New Testament that this is how Preaching the good news is described when it comes to a people. As in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives thanks that the Thessalonians accepted it, the word, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. As we read in Romans, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe him whom... They have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Or again, Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to you through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God so that when the minister behind the pulpit faithfully expounding the scriptures says to you, take Christ, you are to take that not just as the opinion of a man, but you are to take that as, as a statement from Christ himself. That you are to hear in, in these assurances of pardon, not, not my estimation, not my opinion, but a statement from Christ. So the preached word, insofar as it is conformed to the scriptures, comes with authority. The, the preacher does not have liberty to go beyond the scriptures. There's nothing magical about this pulpit. If I decide to go off and, and make all kinds of claims upon your lives that the scripture in no wise makes, that's an abuse.
of our second main point, praise. What is our response to such a proclamation of mercy? The simple answer is that we are to respond with, with blessing. We bless God for it. Again, in our text, we read that after the ascension, Jesus blessed, or prior to the ascension, Jesus blessed the disciples, and then after the ascension, they returned in the final verse to the temple where they were continually praising God or blessing God. Same word there for what Jesus has just done to them. Jesus has just blessed them, and now they return to the temple where they bless God. And so our response to preaching is, first of all, responsive. That our praise is a response to something that has already come to us. That it is our uh, saying amen to what God has told him, told us. In the gospel, God tells us, Christ is glorious. And in praise, we say it back to God, Christ is glorious. God tells us, my son is exalted. And we respond and and, and say, yes, indeed, your son is exalted. It is our reciprocal response. The content is much the same, but the direction is reversed. That we bless God for what he has just told us in the preaching. It is the saints' thank you and amen to the word of God. And further and finally, we note that our praise is to be vocal and verbal. There are all kinds of ways that we can praise God. The whole Christian life is a, a, a thanksgiving unto God, a sacrifice unto God. And so week to week, there are all, uh, all manner of ways in which you live a life of gratitude before God. And this is part of your, your sacrifice, presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. This is part of our worship. As we're focusing on corporate worship we find that, that praise is, on our part, to be vocal, that we're to respond, that what is hidden in our souls is to become publicly manifest out of our mouths as we audibly confess the goodness of Christ. And so not all praise is necessarily singing, and not all singing is praise, but there are hymns that we sing that are, are requests, petitions, And there are prayers that we pray in which we praise God. But for the most part, in our our worship service, the point where the congregation has opportunity to respond to the gospel word vocally, audibly, is in the singing. Now this is the appropriate response, and that we ought to make it our chief delight to be continually, as often as we can, among the saints of God's people, singing our God's praises in response to him. So let us now bless God's name in prayer and singing alike. Our Father, we praise you and bless your name for the glorious gospel of your Son, for the free uh, redemption that is ours in him. Uh, We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.